Who is bold enough to say, I don't need any wisdom? I mean, except for maybe the teenager among us, none of us would be courageous enough to say, I don't need anyone to tell me anything. Well, the great news about Ecclesiastes is it's a book of wisdom. And the preacher is trying to give us wisdom uh, to live life, to navigate. It, it's not simply giving us wisdom uh, so that we can relate to God, but really how we live under the sun, how we navigate doing this thing called the business of life. We need wisdom. And this is why the rhetorical question in 8.1 is, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Uh, in other words, we're looking for the wise man. We're looking for the one who knows. Haven't we all been placed in a situation where we think, what am, what am I to do next? And, and, and what is my next step to be? We want wisdom to avoid the foolishness of this world. We want wisdom. In fact, we see that wisdom changes us. It makes us better. Look at the second half of verse 1 in chapter 8. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. You know, when you hear about face shining, you think about Moses being with God, being at peace his face kind of shining. In fact, anytime in scripture you see a face shining, it's usually a good life. It's a life well lived, a life that's content and happy. So the face is like an index of the heart. Do we have wisdom needed to live? Do you want to be wise? I mean, do you seek to live in wise ways? You know, it might interest you to know that in Scripture, wisdom is not related to the intellect or the IQ. It's not related to technical know-how. It's not related to academic strength. It's skillful at living. That's what wisdom is. It's skillful at living, that you're living in a way that produces joy and contentment and peace and happiness. That's what the preacher wants for us. That's what I want for us. Really, that's all of chapter 8. Chapter 8 is all about how do we live under the sun in ways that are wise, and in particular, facing the challenges that we have in this life. We have four challenges here. How do we live before authorities? How do we live before uncertainties? How do we live before injustices? How do we live in the midst of unfairness? These are the four areas that the preacher is going to give us wisdom to live. So I want to think one at a time, this idea of authorities. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 2, because he's going to give us wisdom as to how do we relate to authorities. Of course, when I say authorities, I mean the government, naturally, but really all authorities. We have authorities in the home, authorities in the marketplace, authorities, um, just all kinds of authorities. So look with me at 8, 2. He says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in the evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. Who may say to him, what are you doing? What's interesting here is he says, keep the king's command. The word is supreme. We're called to obey the king. Now, we don't live in a monarchy. We live in a republic. But we have elected officials who make laws and statutes that we're called to obey. We're called to follow them. We're called to submit to the call that they put on our lives. Now, the preacher describes what obedience looks like. Notice what he says. He says, be not hasty to go from his presence. In other words, don't be too quick about not wanting to follow the king's commands. Don't be too quick to say, well, his policies aren't in keeping with what I think is best. So I'm going to desist from obeying. I'm going to get unengaged. 
He also says to not take your stand in an evil cause. Don't align yourself with the rebellious. Don't align yourself with those who are resisting. Now, you know, this is not easy to do. You know, we are a people. Even our country itself has been founded on rebellion. We rebelled against a king. And if you're Protestant, the forebears in faith also protested. They protested against the authority in Rome. So the question comes up was, well, why is it wise to obey? Well, he tells us. He says, because of God's oath to him. God has ordained authority to be part of this life under the sun. You see it in creation. You see that the sun governs all the planets as they revolve around the sun. You see authority in all kinds of structures. You see it in the civil world with kings, princes. You see it in the families with mothers and fathers. You see authority in the marketplace with employers and employees. See, God has ordained authority for our good. It's the kindness of God to give authority to us to help keep order and peace. A good government brings order to our lives, just like God does. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't disagree. You notice he says, what are you doing? Sometimes we do ask the question, well, what are they thinking? There is a place of dissent and disagreement. In fact, in verse 5, he says, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. The wisdom is knowing the proper way and the right time to exercise godliness, uh, to, to dissent in a way that's peaceable and truthful and loving and for the good of others. So, so we have this idea that God has established authority and wisdom looks like obedience. So let me give you an idea of what to do. You know, first, let's recognize that authority is ordained by God. That The Bible is actually very pro-authority. You know, God established kings over the civil government. He established priests over the spiritual realm. He established mothers and fathers over the realm of family and employers and employees in the marketplace. So it's pro-authority. And it's not just in the Old Testament that we see this, but actually in the New Testament, there's continuity in Romans chapter 13. Paul speaks about the obedience to government, the paying of taxes. He says the same thing Peter does in his first letter about obeying government, praying for those in authority. Uh, Jesus in the gospel says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and render to God the things that are God. So Jesus gives human government a place under the sun. So let's recognize that God has established authority and we do well to pray for it and to submit to it. Now, I would say that personally, do you honor the authority in your attitudes and in your words and in your deeds? Do you follow what they say or do you grumble? You know, some of us have kind of an anti-authoritarian spirit, you know, the bumper sticker, the old bumper, questioning authority. You know, many of us struggle when it goes in ways different than what we want to do. And I would simply ask you, you want to make sure that in your resistance to authority, that you're not actually resisting what God is doing with that authority. You might want to repent. You might want to pray to have a more submissive spirit. And if you do dissent or if you do disagree, then do it in peaceable ways. Do it in the right way at the right time. Speak the truth in love. Ask others if your complaint is legitimate. Don't treat all your complaints at the same value and same level. Don't assume that everything you disagree with is always at a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. You know, here we are in the midst of this pandemic, coronavirus. Our government 
is striving to bring about order and help to us? Are we praying for them? Are, are, are we asking God to give them wisdom? Are we praying for not just our government, but even the bosses that, we, that are trying to make decisions for their employees? Or even your church leaders here at Christ's Covenant. We're faced with all kinds of decisions we didn't anticipate. We need you to pray for wisdom. So, so before we lodge complaints, let's seek God to grant grace to these authorities. So his first step in giving us wisdom at living life under the sun is to, is to relate to authorities with wisdom, and that is obedience and honor. But look at the second thing that we see. The second thing is the, um, the uncertainties that we face in life. This is another area that really provides problems for the Christians to walk with wisdom. We tend to fear. We tend to get nervous. We don't know what's going to come tomorrow. How do we respond? Well, look with me at 6 to 8. Because in 6 to 8, he writes, For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. For who can tell how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. What he's saying here is simply this, that there are uncertainties that we all face in life. Uh, trouble lies heavily on man. Well, it can be all kinds of troubles. It can be job loss. It can be, it can be cancer. It can be the coronavirus. We don't know what's going to be. We don't know how it's going to go. But not only do we not know the future, we actually don't have the power to change the present. Notice how he says, no man has the power to retain the spirit or the wind or power over the day of his death. In other words, we don't have power today to even be able to harness the wind and change the direction of it. We don't have power to start and stop wars. We don't have the power to stop the evil or person who's intent on doing wickedness. We don't have the power over determining the day of our own death. Here, a day so critical like that, we don't even know when it will be. This wisdom really is carried into the New Testament as well. In the book of James, in chapter 4, he says, Why would you say, I'm going to go to this city and do business for a year? He goes, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Now, this isn't to disparage planning. It's just to remind us that our plans are not bulletproof. Our plans are not, they're not without change. And we see this in today's world, don't we? I mean, you look at the, again, the coronavirus. Who could have anticipated the uncertainty regarding our own health? Here, it starts in some small province. And within months, it takes over the world. I mean, there are great uncertainties we face, not just with uh, health, how about finances? In the last month, if you have a conservative portfolio, the market drop has been on average about 21% lost. If you have more of an aggressive portfolio, the average is 32%. Now, just three weeks ago, I warned you, I said, Proverbs 23.5 says, cast but a glance at riches. They will sprout wings like the eagle, and they will fly off to heaven. A lot has been flying away. These are tremendous uncertainties. If you're listening and you're not a Christian, what do you do with the uncertainties? What do you do with the questions about what about tomorrow? What will happen? To go build a bunker in your backyard will not insulate you from the issues of this life. What will you do? How we, our lives have been so predictable for so long, it's almost bred a kind of confidence, even arrogance. What will you do? One author 
writes these words, he says, in our technological age, we have grown so used to simply assuming that what we plan will happen. Trains run, more or less, on time. Flick a switch and the lights always come on. Turn a tap and there's always water. Modern cars really break down. Schools stay open. Businesses can make long-term plans, expecting the general economic shape of our society to remain constant. Things work. Things are predictable. That's all changed. It's chaos in the financial markets the closure of public events, and the very impossibility of making any plans for travel. The world we have created tends to make us arrogant. What will you do? I think the wisdom that he has for us is that the uncertainties of this life are to drive us to the certainty of God. You notice how we started out in verse 6, for there is a time and a way for everything. It reminds you of chapter 3. And in chapter 3, the preacher was reminding us of the sovereign hand of God. He says there's a time for everything, a season for everything that happens under the sun. There's a time to live, there's a time to to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to be plucked up, a time for war, a time of peace, a time of hate, a time of love, a time of speech, and a time of silence. And, and, And he goes through all those facets of life all the uncertainties of life. But he ends that chapter with these words. He says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. So that people fear before him. Do you see what he's doing? The uncertainties of life are to drive us to the certainty of God. The psalmist in 31.15 says, my hands are in his time, that he governs my life. Do you believe this? When Jesus says, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will, do you believe that? Do you trust that? You know, the uncertainties are to drive us to the certainty of God. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me on the rock of ages. In other words, the uncertainties of life, we are living in the midst of great uncertainties. Let them throw you to God. Turn to God. Seek his grace. You know, Paul says these momentary afflictions are creating for us an eternal weight of glory. Let these uncertainties show you the sovereign purposes and plans of God. All things are being worked out to a conclusion for which we will praise him. So here the preacher is reminding us wisdom is needed. Right, You see in chapter 8, verse 1, the banner of this title is wisdom to live in this world. We see it before authorities. We see it before the uncertainties of life. But look with me now at the injustices that we face. You know, For many people, these injustices, you may not face them right now, but you may well, and many already do. But look at how he words it. In chapter 8, verse 9, He says, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. He's bringing up a situation that we we see all the time, that when men or women get power, they can use it to abuse the vulnerable, the weak. It can be governmental, it can be financial and big business, it can be individual between a boss and a Employee, it can be in a home between an adult and parent. You see that those with power and authority do tend to use them for their advantages over the week. And what makes it worse is that they're often 
given accolades for who they are. Rather than being monished for it, they're given accolades. And then it gets even heightened when it has the religious garb. Notice it said, they go in and out of the temple. And at the funerals, they're talked about in their praise. There can't be anything more frustrating than people being commended for their feigned integrity. And then the text says that when evil is not punished quickly, then evil is set in the heart of men. In other words, it increases more and more. What do we do with this? There is injustice. I mean, again, if you're listening and you're not a Christian, you know you have something fundamental in you that wants justice meted out. So recently in the paper, or in one of the articles, uh, two guys from Tennessee hoarded 17,000 bottles of sanitizer. And they were going to begin to just raise the prices and make a killing on it. Can you believe it? At a time when people are genuinely scared, they wanted to take advantage and prey upon that? Well, they were found out. And in the end, they donated them all. I don't know if it was forced or not, but there was a sweet justice to not make a cent off of that. They donated them all. It wasn't an act of courage at all, but they didn't get what they were looking for, and there's justice to that. You know, in fact, if you don't want justice against the injustice of this world, then I would say that would be in, not just indifferent, it would be evil. I mean, for someone who's innocent, being hurt to not care, to not want justice, well, here's the wisdom that's given to us in the text. We can rest in God. We can endure it patiently. Why? Because God will bring justice. Look with me at 12 and 13. He says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, and yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. It will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days, because he does not fear before God. You see what he's saying here? He's saying he admits, I love the honesty and the integrity of Ecclesiastes. He admits, yeah, he may do it a hundred times and it may profit him for a while, but judgment will come because he doesn't fear God. God, the reality of God makes sense of the injustices when they're not corrected in this life because they will be. It will not go well with him, he says. Oh, I would say that's true. You've seen the hand of God exercise justice before. You see it in the first couple when they sinned against God, they were exiled from his presence. You see it, of course, in the flood, sin was judged. You see it in the Tower of Babel when he distributed languages and confused the people. You see it in the nation of Israel when they were sent into exile because they had sinned against God. God does judge. In fact, you see it in the New Testament beautifully. For the Christian, Jesus Christ is judged. Our sins are placed upon him. By faith, our sins are put upon him, and God judges him for our sins. God is just in punishing sin, yet he's merciful, and he justifies those with faith in Christ. So we see that, yes, God does judge. So wisdom in the face of injustice is for us not to fear that, but to fear God. To fear God who will bring about a reconciliation of all things. But I do find that while it is intuitive to fear things that we see, like viruses, or if you see lightning all of a sudden strike, or you hear a thunderclap, you know, you look for cover. We tend to fear national disasters. We tend to fear um, economic downturns. But, but we really don't fear God as much. It, it seems almost ironic that we don't fear the one who created light and who creates darkness. 
But we have to grow in this understanding of a fear of God. This is how we respond in wisdom. So let me give you an example. So when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus in Mark chapter 4, and they're going across the lake, and a storm comes. Now, these are experienced fishermen. They know how to sail. They know what a storm is. And as the wind whips up, the rains are coming down, the water's beginning to fill the boat. It says they feared and they wake up Jesus. So Jesus gets up and he says, peace, be still. When Jesus says, peace, be still, it says the water was still. Now, in any, anybody knows anything about a storm, wind dies down slowly and the waves die down slowly. But this is as if no wind, no rain, no waves. It's as if the hand of God just stopped everything. What's interesting is the disciples said, then they feared an exceedingly great fear. They had this existential threat of a storm that their lives may be taken that caused fear. But now what they find is I'm actually more afraid of the one in the boat. I mean, I'm more afraid of God. And it changed their perspective. We need to pray that we might have a right fear of God. The psalmist does. He says, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. See, what fearing God does is it leads us to faith. It leads us to worship. It leads us to joy. To fear God isn't to find another monster to be scared of. It's to find one who's loving and caring and who's able to deal with the other things causing you fear. He's able to deal with those things. So we run to him. We seek his grace, particularly in this time. Many of us are riddled with fear over food, over the economy, over health. Let me remind you, it's God is the one that we need to fear. He's the one that will provide. He's the one that will protect. So we see the wisdom here. The wisdom is given to us first in this idea of how do we relate to, to authorities and how do we relate to uncertainties. And then we've just talked about how we relate to injustices. Well, let's look at this last one. How do we relate to unfairness? Look with me at 14. In 14, he says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this also is vanity. This, is, this causes great consternation. You know, why is it that those who are righteous get dealt with in the way that the wicked ought to and vice versa. This has led all kinds of people to struggle with God. It's led to agnosticism. It's led to indifference. I mean, what's it all matter? I can try to be righteous, but I get treated poorly. I can live poorly and I get treated righteously. It's like, who's driving this train? Who's driving the car? It almost seems like God's indifferent to us and it leads people away from God. But let me remind you, that's the way it may feel. But look at the wisdom. So we're, when we are confronted with unfairness, when we're getting something we don't deserve while we live under the sun, look at the wisdom he gives us. And it's really fantastic. I, I, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. He tells us to be happy. He says, I commend joy. That's right in verse 15. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life, that God has given him under the sun. He's telling us to rejoice in the simple things in life. He's telling us to eat and drink, to enjoy our relationships, be together, enjoy all that God gives you. Enjoy the work that you have, even though it may be toilsome. Enjoy the food that you have. 
Now, he's not calling us to some unbridled hedonism, kind of an eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. No, he's saying be happy with the food and the drink that you have because God has given them to you as a gift, as a foretaste of how much more he has to give. He's given us days. Notice he says, through the days of his life that God has given you under the sun, God has given you days to live. I don't know how many they are. But he gives you days and he gives you gifts in those days. So even as our lives are entering a season where maybe we're being treated unfairly, God is reminding us of his constancy and his goodness to us in giving us these ordinary things. I would propose to you that you would moralize these little things, these common things, that you would savor them, that even today you would go home and and you would eat your meal happily that the conversation would be sweet, that you would recognize these things that I have to eat and to drink and the people with whom I have to live. Thank you, God, you've given me these things. Because it's in reflecting on all these things that God has given to us that it becomes like fuel to help us live in times of trial. So one author said it this way, if you're suffering today, pause to ponder God's goodness in your past. Let the gratitude that rises give you confidence that light will shine again on your weary heart. So I've shared before with you that Carol and I will often look back at our past. We don't just look at the high water marks. Uh, we look at all the things that God has given to us, and we just reflect on them. We thank them for them. And that provides for us a foundation of faith to know that he's going to carry us through the difficult times. You know, most, most baseball games are not one on home runs. They're one on singles. Singles and singles and singles. It's the little things that show the goodness of God. So he tells us, even in times of unfairness, of unfairness, don't forget to be thankful for the little things. Don't always be looking for the next thing. Park and stop and enjoy the little things that he's given to you, the common things, the ordinary things. But then secondly, I think wisdom in the midst of unfairness looks like humility. Look with me at 16 and 17. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. There's a certain humility that's engendered here. We can't understand all the details of why life is unfair for us. We can't tease out all the ways that God is perhaps working in the midst of this unfairness. We don't know. In fact, J.I. Packer writes in his book, Knowing God, he says, God in his wisdom to make us humble and to teach us to walk by faith has hidden almost everything that we should like to know about his providential purposes, which he's working out. There's a certain humility that's being called for. This idea of trying to tease out, how do I make sense of life? I would just suggest we humble ourselves before God and ask for his wisdom. Now, he is giving us wisdom in Ecclesiastes. It's a book of wisdom. But I would say to you, it's a first installment. Where we look to know of God's wisdom is in Christ. 
Christ, I would say, would be the final installment. In fact, Jesus says in the gospel, one greater than Solomon has come among you. That's himself. Christ personifies wisdom. In fact, he says, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God. Jesus is God's wisdom. He has entered this world to not just declare the wisdom, but to be the wisdom. How so? By untangling the unfairness. How does he do this? Well, think about it for a minute. Jesus, the one who is righteous, has come, and he was treated as the wicked. So that we who are wicked might be the righteousness of God. You see the gospel here. The gospel displays the wisdom of God. God doesn't stand aloof from the unfairness and the uncertainties and the injustices and the unjust governments. He enters right in it in Christ. And Christ isn't just coming to solve the riddle of the mystery of life. He's coming to bring a new life. He's coming to inaugurate a new world. That's why Christ says, enter the world to change all things. But he has come as the righteous one. And we treated him as the wicked. And he suffered as a wicked man, bearing our sin and our shame and our guilt. And yet we, those in faith who are wicked, we then receive the righteousness of God, forgiveness, adoption, and the promise of being with God forever. See, what Christ has come is not to give us an answer for these uncertainties and enigmas of life. He's come to transform them. He's come to create a new world to draw us out of exile from under the sun to being with God again, dwelling with God. That's what he's come to do. C.S. Lewis spoke about it this way. He spoke about the incarnation in these words. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into eternity. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the ruined world with him. One has the picture of a, of a strong man stooping low and lower and lower to get himself underneath some great burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders, changing all things for the good. Jesus has come to deliver. If you're not a Christian, this is the central story of the Bible. That in this world, you will never get full explanation. You'll never fully know, but Christ has entered the world. And by faith in him, we reap the benefits of him being righteous, getting what the wicked deserve, and we who are wicked, getting what the righteous deserve. So when you look at this chapter, it's a beautiful chapter. It's all headed up with wisdom. The wisdom we need to live under the sun. And you see, he's given us wisdom for how we relate to government, authorities, even unjust authorities. He gives us wisdom as to how we relate with uncertainties, the fears that we're facing even today with this virus. He gives us wisdom to relate to injustices, that we fear God. God will deal. God will judge. God will bring about a complete and thorough justice. And then we also have wisdom regarding the unfairness. It's hard to say and complain about the unfairness when Christ has entered the unfairness and transformed it. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy. You have given us more than wisdom. You've given us a son. And this son has not just brought intellect, but he has brought transformation. 
He's brought a new world. He's brought a new order. He's inaugurated a new life for us. He's given us new life. Father, may this life buoy us. May this wisdom and life that he's come to bring buoy us today. May we be people of great faith, fearless, knowing that you're working all things out for the good, for those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And I pray this name of Jesus. Amen.